0: In 1968,
1: just before Mexico was about to host the Summer Olympic Games, the country was also experiencing a growing and energetic new student movement. Young Mexicans, including workers, farmers, housewives, merchants, intellectuals, artists, and teachers, were mobilizing and calling for political change. They wanted more accountability from their government and the ruling Institutional Revolutionary Party, or the PRI. On the evening of October 2nd, 1968, when a large group of students gathered in Mexico City's Tlatelolco Plaza for a peaceful protest in March, it didn't seem that unusual. This was just 10 days before the Olympic Games were scheduled to begin. One of the students on the plaza that day was Fanny Blauer's father. Fernando Alvarado Rosas.
2: He was protesting with the students. At that point, he was already uh, graduated uh, as a teacher. Uh, He was a professor. He was doing his master's degree in English, actually.
1: Around 6.50 p.m. that evening, students reported seeing a light falling from a military helicopter in the sky.
2: And then uh, soldiers are uh, marching towards this big group of people, thousands of people were there. And when the light, this light, that like a firework that was dropped from a helicopter. Uh, At that point, uh, the army started to shoot against people.
1: Chaos erupted among the thousands of unarmed students.
2: You can see that people started to run like crazy, trying to figure out exactly what was happening. Uh, Everybody was rushing back and forth, didn't know exactly where to go. People were being captured. Everybody who was falling down was being killed.
1: Some soldiers were shooting from surrounding buildings and rooftops. A later investigation revealed that snipers with the presidential guard were even instructed to fire on the military forces themselves in order to provoke them. Fernando was among those students who were shot.
2: He was shot on the leg, but he didn't notice that he was shot until he saw blood. Because he. I remember him saying the adrenaline of what was happening was so intense. There was no electricity, and he was, it was raining really hard. It started to rain really hard, so, so he was wearing a, a long coat. Uh, when, so he was laying down on the floor, and he saw blood, and he said, what is this? And, oh, it's me.
1: At this moment, a man wearing a single white glove grabbed him by the hair and pulled him down a flight of stairs.
2: And he was swearing to my dad, saying, you are going to go to hell from here. And then at that point, they started to shoot, you know, they were shooting everywhere. So uh, this man told my dad, stay here, I'm coming back. And so my dad, of course, instead of waiting for this man, who was a spy, because the thing is that you could see policemen and soldiers, and you could see also people dressed as as civil people, but they were actually uh, working for the government, and they were identified by this white globe.
1: Her father knocked on the door of a nearby apartment and a kind woman inside let him in.
2: Within this apartment there was a nurse and when the nurse saw my father, she told him, you are going to die, you're bleeding like crazy, you, you, we need to get out of here. Uh, so this nurse was able to save my dad by saying, you say that you're my husband and we went out for, to get bread for our children because you know this is happening in an apartment complex where children and family live. This is not in an industrial area or a financial district. This is in a neighborhood. People being killed in a neighborhood.
1: Well, this podcast is Nuevas Voces, episode 17, a podcast by Artists in Mexico in Utah. In this episode, we're talking about the Tlatelolco Massacre, or that massacre of student activists that occurred in Mexico cities 10 days before the 1968 Olympics. The event was considered part of the so-called Dirty War that the Mexican government waged against its own citizens for several decades, from about 1968 to 2000. It was a devastating time for Mexico. We'll be talking more about how this event is remembered or misremembered, and how it affected artistic expression and political art in protest by that surviving generation. On that day, thousands of students were arrested, and the final death toll is a mystery. While the earlier estimates were grossly undercounted by the government, some estimate that hundreds of civilians lost their lives or were injured. The government's official account at the time was that the students, infiltrated by communist forces had fired on the army first, and the soldiers had to fire back to defend themselves. Fanny's father was one of the fortunate survivors of this massacre that the army attempted to cover up.
2: The the most horrible thing about this is that the next morning, the plaza was completely clean. It looked like nothing had happened. They were sweeping with water, right, cleaning the plaza to make sure that there was no evidence of blood or anything. My dad, when he shared this story with with us, as I was a little girl, he always said, don't say this story to anybody. And for 20 years, my dad was basically uh, undercover because he was so afraid he was going to be killed.
1: Today, thankfully, this event is acknowledged and memorialized. But it wasn't until 2001, after the PRI lost its 70-year reign on power, and newly elected President Vicente Fox ordered the release of previously classified documents about the massacre released to the public.
2: So now there is a museum in Mexico City, actually in this, in this close to this plaza, that uh, uh, includes a lot of the pictures of, the, of everything that was found that night. Uh, the pictures are, very, are not very visible, uh, or pictures that were taken during the moment. And you can, there is one very significant picture that I, I, it's in my mind all the time, is a, a picture with shoes, of shoes everywhere. So you can imagine, that's a sign that everybody was running, trying to save for their lives.
1: There's actually quite a lot of literature and dramatic films and documentaries about this Tlatelolco massacre. Now we can actually see the Mexican army's own footage in black and white, filmed from a nearby rooftop.
2: Famous Mexican writer Elena uh, Poniatonska that, that actually wrote about this movement. Uh, José Luis Cuevas, our La Ruptura, uh, uh, Cortina del Nopal creator, uh, it's believed that he was one of the initiators of this movement because he was against the government, the whole political party corrupted.
1: One interesting issue that some social scholars point to regarding this event and similar conflicts between the Mexican military and civilians today is one of social class inequity and conflict.
2: Remember, we're talking about a new social class in Mexico. Suddenly we have this middle class group of people, thousands of students that come from rural areas. And something interesting is that the army in Mexico is mostly indigenous. When you look at the army in Mexico, they don't come from the city, they come from the rural areas. Maybe it's their only possibility or option to succeed. So army, the people in the army were actually very upset against this new middle class, still looking indigenous maybe, but middle class. So they didn't really mind killing this, their own people for representing the, the new Mexicans
3: the urban Mexican
1: so there was a class uh, completely involved too. totally here's Jorge Rodriguez
3: Uh, in today's day and age in Mexico there's kind of a hierarchy of the I'm gonna say this in quotes low lives you know because the police are looked as low lives military are also kind of looked down upon so you have the police as like some of the lowest of low but then you have the military which is a completely different category and like Fanny said, they predominantly are people who are from rural areas, uh, indigenous people who have no other opportunities. They don't have an access to to a, a comprehensive education, uh, and usually the military is their only option for a for a steady income. And so, uh, yeah, I think even to this day, there's still that huge divide.
1: The Mexican student movement and the Tlatelolco Massacre itself had an impact on artistic expression, specifically on Mexican political protest art. Oddly, the artistic designs of one American graphic artist, Lance Wyman, who ultimately created the logo and the graphic designs for Mexico City's 1968 Olympic Games, were later co-opted by the student movement.
2: He had never been in Mexico and suddenly he was fascinated by the culture of Mexico by visiting museums and I find it very interesting how he developed a lot of his art based on the ancient cultures, all the circles and the continuation of of, uh, uh, geometric uh, shapes. Uh, So there was suddenly a new uh, movement of art that uh, was actually used. by the students to protest against the government. So it was the bloody Olympics.
1: One visually gripping lithograph shows a student with his mouth bound with chains, along with the logo for the 68 Olympics. Here's Susan Vogel. This was
4: created by one of the artists who participated, who was part of the Taller de Grafica Popular, Mm -hmm. but many of the artists from the Taller, like Pablo Higgins, were no longer producing political art, and certainly not political art that showed the current problems because they were so close to the government, they were had a really good deal um, through the government galleries. The mm-hmm. government started art galleries, and then they could um, choose the artwork that was in their favor. Um, so a lot, there are very few artists who were still really speaking out against the atrocities that were happening um, during the what's now called the Dirty War.
1: Another image that was produced after the massacre shows a white dove being stabbed by a bayonet.
2: The Olympics in Mexico were called Los Juegos de la Paz, the Games of the Peace. You can imagine. And then they have the icon of, of the pigeon here. Irony. Not, exactly. So the irony in this poster, and we talked about this in our class, the poster phenomenon in Mexico, and it still exists. You go to Mexico City, and in every post, for every wall, there is going to be posters, posters,
1: political, political posters yep. of
2: all kinds. So people will dedicate time to just go and put posters everywhere, everywhere, mm-hmm. everywhere in the city. So print and post. <laughs>
1: but that partly answers my question, also. But it was is that these were to, meant to be mass produced. Mm-hmm. They weren't just mm-hmm. one single. No, image they were or everywhere. Every they were post. So, they could be spread out.
2: Exactly. <laughs> Students will go, you know, at night and just start posting, and they still do that.
1: Part of the goal of the mass-produced posters was to combat the government's misinformation campaign and how the massacre was reported at the time by the Mexican media, and to shape how it was perceived and remembered afterward.
2: The newspapers were advertising that bunch of anarchists that started this fight against the government to to, uh, break the reputation of the Mexican Miracle. And uh, the other uh, personal experience that I have with, with my mom. So my mom and my dad were dating. My mom said that she was super worried about my dad. She didn't know what happened until she saw my dad. She kind of heard something in the radio, but she never thought it was that. And we're talking, she, li- she used to live maybe three miles from this main plaza at Latelolco. And she didn't hear any, that it, that the she didn't imagine the significance of what had just happened. And my grandmother and my grandmother's family, they were super upset because my dad was part of this bunch of anarchists. When my dad was like, it's not exactly how that happened.
1: So there was a narrative and there was a counter narrative.
2: Oh, it was a huge division socially. Because remember, we're talking about a new middle class that was completely divided. The students who, who, who are... Fighting for social justice, and the Mexicans who are growing in this very wealthy Mexico is like, oh, we need to protect this industrialized Mexico.
3: It's a it's a really interesting contrast because uh, you know my family, I have family members who are fairly you know like I mentioned very uh, very poor. They live in rural areas, but on the other side of my family, there's people who are you know multi millionaires, and by today's standards, it'd be billionaires. Uh, and there's definitely this this contrast, and it's very similar to what Susan described. This idea that we have to, um, you know, we have to keep things quiet. We can't really rattle the cage or anything. Let's let's keep it all nice and civil. Anything or anyone trying to uh, mess that image up is is uh, not welcome. And and definitely, you can see that still to this day with with most uh, affluent people in Mexico.
1: As we mentioned earlier, when the political reign of the PRI party ended around 2001, the government began a period of reconciliation about what had happened. But did things really improve for Mexico?
2: I think the phenomenon of immigration can give you the answer. For me, is very relevant. Uh, in the 70s, the, the, the immigration grew tremendously in the U.S. And I think to me, that is a manifestation of people just wanted to escape that corrupted uh system where really the revolution is just an ideal it really became an ideal and and my dad i remember my dad constantly constantly it was like a really like an existential crisis where he would be actually very sad because he said you know my grandparents fought in the revolution he was the result of the revolution he participated in this industrialization hoping to 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 have a, a better life condition and although you know we we grew up fine still not rich but be, being part of this urban community but seeing so many social injustices and you will think that after a revolution thousands of people that were killed you know 60 years later this thing happened again and the government acted like nothing happened and then in 1971 i think there was another movement the los Alcones, right mm-hmm. and okay. and uh same thing and so many protests with we had we had a case when was that of the 43 that disappeared oh in
1: Mexico? just recently mm-hmm. like what four years ago and six years same ago?
2: things keep happening you know, people disappear. Groups of students disappear. There was then, a
1: group of young school kids. Yes, teachers,
4: there has teachers, been, teachers, there, there has has been, teachers. There has yeah. been
2: protests all over the world. Parents that go out and say, "We want our children alive. Where are they?" The government doesn't have an answer. And you can see that it's a corrupted system. It makes me very sad.
3: And something to add to that idea of just how uh, difficult it is to live. I mean, I grew up in a city and there was always, I mean, there's different levels of police, right? I talked about this a little bit, but um, nobody is feared more than the policía judicial, the judicial police. They are basically law and executioner. They have the impunity to kill anybody at any time uh, without any repercussions. And they are they kind of became a bit of a a myth, kind of a not necessarily myth, but more like a like a a boogeyman, if you will. And I had a couple of run-ins with them when I was a kid because, you know, you're a teenager and you mess around. Um, but I've had I've heard stories of family members, friends, friends' families who had um, you know, run-ins with them, and it's not uncommon to hear, well, you know, I've had family members disappear, even in like urban areas, even like the middle of a, a large city fully developed with industry because of of different political ideologies. And it's still
1: going on to this day. For me, as someone trying to better understand the phenomenon of mass migration and the political concerns of immigration of people from Mexico wanting to come to the U.S., this conversation seems relevant and important. Uh, you just you see this sort of mass, continued mass movement of, of just people wanting, I guess, a better life and and... Wanting to get out and, and come to this country, and but would you say that that sort of started to pick up post after this event, or I mean, was it kind of something gradually that picked up through the seventies, eighties? When did we start to see this? I think it was
2: in, the, wasn't it, in the eighties, it, it was eight,
1: in the eighties, especially after 80s. after the Reagan administration. But mm-hmm. I think uh, there's always
3: been uh, a lot of migration that happens, but specifically after the uh, the economic conditions in Mexico started getting more and more dire. Uh, there was more uh, immigrants, there was more movement of people. Um, and I think we started noticing it more and started cracking down on it more in the U.S. and made it more of a, uh, an issue in the 80s and in the, uh, well, in the 70s and in the 80s. And so uh, you can definitely see the reaction in the U.S. to this migration, uh, which is interesting considering that the U.S. is largely responsible for the conditions that that created this movement in the
1: mm-hmm. first place. This Mexican dirty war and the seemingly never-ending injustices that hurt Mexico and its people in the decades following the Tlatelolco massacre is something that still today weighs heavily on the minds of many people.
2: I think for me, my perspective as a Mexican immigrant, I didn't grow up here, so it's very different. And I see this as as an act, uh, as an example of continuation that history repeats itself all the time. It doesn't matter what happens, if it's good or bad, it's going to happen again. Humans don't understand exactly. It is maybe true violence and that, that that to make peace we need to have war, and maybe my view is very catalytic, but it is actually it depresses me to think that when I think that these things are constantly happening, is is a way to show that we haven't learned, and that's why it's so important to have these conversations, because We have to question, we have to question what happened. We have to uh,
3: uh,
2: look and study and, and ask people personal stories. Uh,
3: Well, and there's also another problem because today in today's day and age, we have a very tailored type of ideology. So mass media and uh, uh, you know, even the arts are, are custom-made to specific ideologies to push the narratives. Um, and one of the, the, the beautiful things about the art world is that it was able to speak about the injustices and uh, bring a public face on it and in a fairly unique way, whereas you couldn't just protest without getting repercussions. Artists, though they were definitely persecuted and had a lot of repercussions, a lot of these works tend, you know, tend to survive. Uh, but now you have artists who are, for example, in the U.S. who are um, depicting a, a, a specific ideology uh, based on their political idea uh, ideas, and it creates more confusion and it makes it harder for us to learn any specific thing out of it because now it's harder to tell which side was right, if you will, because now we have this idea that well, they if this side would only do the thing that they need to do, oh, well, but if this side would only do this other thing and there's no reconciliation. And I think that's only gotten worse in the last decade or so.
4: Um, when we do exhibits of the photographs of the Mexican Revolution, we have a lot of older people who shed a lot of tears because um, they saw that there was so much hope and a million people died and family members died and they say, what for? So I think the, it's, that really signaled the end of that hope that a lot of people had in Mexico. And then I think as, as um, what I was saying, it also signals the, the, you know, the muzzling of the opposition or of artists or people who speak out is is just awful because uh, usually it's the artists who are the first to speak out against injustices. And right now, journalism, journalists in Mexico, are it's a very risky profession. A lot of journalists are being silenced.
3: It's the most dangerous place for a journalist in the world, mm-hmm.
4: Mexico. So,
2: but to be optimistic, I would say, I... When I go to Mexico to visit my family, and, and now I see myself as a Mexican who is a foreigner in her own country sometimes. And and really what, what me- gives me hope is that level of authentication of exp- art expression. If you go to Mexico, any plaza that you go, any museum, any st- folk store, you're going to find art somehow color vibrant emotions that where people have this this huge desire to show to express their feelings through art because sometimes it's the only way they can do it and they do it to their crafts because they show their ancient uh culture or they do it through paintings or they do it through singing uh street art straight art <laughs> which is it, and it's, it's fabulous. I, I get so passionate about it. I'm just walking on the street, in one segment of two streets in Mexico City, and it's so... You can almost touch it. It's there. You can hear the voice of the people. You can see it in every single thing that they are doing. And it's in the families, too.
3: Uh, a few years ago, I became very interested in, um, you know, in ancient history, uh, Mexican ancient history, and, of course, native uh, history. Uh, especially in the art and I feel like um, for the last maybe eight to ten years there's been a sort of a renaissance uh, decolonization yeah that that, thank you that decolonization Um, and you can see it through all sorts of modern movements you know different types of artists you have everything from musicians to actors to painters to you know all all the mediums they're all expressing this idea that okay we we're done with the past it's time for us to find ourselves again find our roots again and that as an artist excited me to start exploring that as well and so i think that like fanny says there's definitely an optimism there it it's it's not over yet
1: These are some of the sounds and music from the 1968 protesters in Mexico City. You can see some of the works of art and photographs related to the Tlatelolco massacre that we discussed in this episode on the website and home for this podcast, artismexut.org. Please share your own thoughts with us. Did you or one of your family members have an experience with this sad event in 1968? Or how did the decline of civil society in Mexico in the following decades affect you or your family? You can share your impressions with us in the comments section on our website. Thanks as always to Fanny Blauer, Susan Vogel, and Jorge Rodriguez for their thoughtful insight and commentary throughout this podcast project. The music you heard in this episode comes from Cliff Martinez, Gustavo Santo Alaya, Elliot Goldenthal, Calexico, Al Cayola, Antonio Pinto, Philip Glass, and this last song is called No Se Olvida by Mexican musician Fernando Delgadillo. This podcast is made possible by a grant from Utah Humanities, thanks to the Scope Radio at the University of Utah for the studio space. I'm Ross Chambliss. This is Nuevas Voces. <speaking in Spanish>
0: pero nunca le han faltado al 12 de octubre honores tales. Los jurados, los festejos con que se viste septiembre, luego viene a distanciar al pueblo de sus dirigentes. Y entonces sí que empezamos a tomar las referencias y se activa la memoria. Vuelven las historias viejas y a quien habla del respeto a un poder que provocaron, que sube estudiantes muertos, fue porque se lo ganaron. Y antes estás me he cuestionado si alguien se puede ganar, que otro le niegue el derecho de volver a respirar, de que lo priven de todo. Su futuro y sus recuerdos, por la ofensa imperdonable, de que no vive de acuerdo. Oh, 12 de octubre en olfo, continúa estando presente, ronda en plazas y mitines, favoroso y contundente, porque es el día nacional que no se perdonó la vida, por esto y por los que faltan 12 octubre se olvida. Lo que para uno sirvió como un recorte de maleza, para la gran mayoría sólo es motivo de vergüenza. Hay quien alzó su puño al cielo ante algo inaceptable, porque el golpe fue de muy alto y se volvió incontestable. Hoy al vino es mi intención reavivar viejas cenizas, aunque siempre se lamenta que no se hiciera justicia y que las manos manchadas continúen bien escondidas. Entre los que van y vienen que ante todos cierran filas y a octubre lo ensucia un día de matanza en la gran plaza de la que tantos muchachos nunca volvieron a casa. de octubre en plaz del continua estando presente, ronda en plazas y mitines, pavoroso y contundente. Porque es el día nacional que no se perdonó la vida Por esto y por los que faltan 12 de octubre no se olvida Yo pregunto al ego las heridas que nunca cierran Cuando dejarán de rondar 12 de octubre en mi tierra